Mofax with Adam Curry for September 23rd, 2019, episode number eight. As we wind down the month, time to do another show. Mo, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing outstanding, outstanding. Everyone really loved the last episode. Got a lot of real good positive feedback. How about you? Uh, nothing but positive feedback on this side as well. Excellent. Excellent. So you told me... Um, I can't remember. It must have been uh, last week over the weekend. You kind of let me know what the uh, what the topic would be. It may be incredibly topical uh, considering the Emmy Awards last night. So I'm very curious to see what's going to happen on today's MoFax with Adam Curry. Yes. Um, the Emmys was a, a ple- uh, not a pleasant surprise, but um, I didn't follow it that closely. But I did see one headline where... Um, the black male uh, lead. Yep. Uh, what is his name? Billy. I, 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 Billy. I, Billy. His name is Billy. Billy right. Yep. Billy with the and crazy it's a, hat. <laughs> and it's it's gonna be so uh, ironic about this. What we're gonna talk about talk about in today's show. What happened last year with Billy? Billy. Do you remember what happened with Billy last year? You know, to be honest, uh, Billy Porter. I think uh, the keeper and I tried to watch pose once or twice and just really couldn't get into it and uh i i really you know i didn't think about billy porter until i saw him with that hat i'm like yeah all right <laughs> now that's a lid right there i haven't i can't remember at all what happened last year well billy's hat wasn't his first fashion statement oh, no last doubt. year billy <laughs> wore a dress to the emmys oh okay and this is going to be very um very important to the subject that we're going to talk about today. Um, but I mean, just just file that away. Just okay. file that no, away. Right. That Billy wore dressed dressed to the Emmys last year, <laughs> and then he wins this year. Okay, so, all right. I, I I hear your skepticism already. Um, all right, <laughs> take us through it, Mo. All right, so we we start the show off on a more somber note. Um, what's going to lead us in today's show is what happened in the past week with Mr. Ed Buck. Ah, yes. Yes, we've had our eye on him for a couple of years. He's been in all kinds of trouble, but not really in trouble, and now he is really in trouble. So, last show, I went on a tangent, um, and I I said at a later date, we would discuss the LGBT alliance with uh with black movement right uh so with this happening with ed buck this gave us the proper context to have this conversation it's funny how those things work out i i didn't plan to have this conversation this or, i mean i mean i plan to have it but it, it's amazing how the timing worked out that it gave us the pl- perfect leap leap off point to have this conversation so let's just get into a little background we're a little clip heavy today so i want to get right into it let's get into pre-arrest uh serial predator ed buck 
Investigators in California looking into the second death of an African-American man in the home of Democratic mega-donor Ed Buck over the span of less than two years. The man, now being identified as 55-year-old Timothy Dean, he died of an apparent overdose. Back in July of 2017, 26-year-old Jamil Moore was found dead of a meth overdose in the same apartment. Our next guest has been sounding the alarm on Ed Buck for over a year. Journalist and political commentator Jasmine Kanick joins us right now live from LA with more. Jasmine, good morning to you. Good morning. Let's start at the beginning. Who is Ed Buck? Ed Buck is a major donor to the California Democratic Party as well as a lot of its elected members. He's given lots and lots of money. He's a well-known animal rights activist as well as an LGBT activist. No, oh, I didn't know about the animal rights part. That's cool. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so the these clips, this this first series of clips is post the second man, black gay man dying in Ed Buck's um apartment due to a drug overdose in the same manner. And prior to the this, third victim, yeah, who, uh, who the who, most recent victim, the escape, he was able to escape. Yeah, he got out alive. That's right. So just to set that up. And so um, this is a great, a great backgrounder. So let's get into clip number two. You have been uh, a Democratic activist for a while. You worked on Capitol Hill. You worked in California politics. This is very upsetting to you personally. Why? Regarding the Democratic Party. Because over 77% of black people in California vote Democrats. We vote for Democrats. It is a shame that when something like this happens, when you have the chair of your state party, who at the time was Eric Bauman, who was very good friends with Ed Buck, was willing to turn a blind eye as well as instruct others not to speak on it. As a black woman, as a black Democrat, I expect more from my party. That is not the type of investment that black Mm. people expect from Democrats. When we're being killed, when we are being hurt, and we are being harmed, we expect the Democratic Party to stand up for what's right. If it was someone who was white, if it was a white gay man, I feel like the Democratic Party would have took a completely different position. But because these are young black gay men who are largely invisible, I feel like my party just feels like they're not worth it. And that's absolutely wrong. Yeah, and obviously when when this came out after uh, the second guy was uh, OD'd in his apartment, yeah, it was pretty clear that it seemed like there was some protectionism going on, seeing as Mr. Mr. Buck was a, a huge Democratic Party donor. That is that is correct. And it I just find it strange that Kamala Harris, being the pro-LGBT uh, candidate that she is, and being the former DA, I mean, of, uh, you know, in California and holding the post that she has held in California didn't bring attention to this. Wait, she hasn't mentioned this at all? I've searched high and low and I can't Hmm. find anything her. Well, I'm not surprised that she hasn't (laughs) because, I mean, he's a big time uh, donor and, you know, that money trickles down or up or however you want to look at it uh, across different multiple campaigns. Also. I'm surprised that uh, there were some gay rights, black gay rights groups that were addressing this, but not to the point where you have two dead black men dead in a white man's apartment. You would think this would be all across CNN news. 
uh, MSNBC when it, when the first two bodies occurred. And le- just for background, they did find syringes full of drugs in his apartment, and he didn't even get a drug charge. <laughs> yeah, he has special privilege. Don't you realize this, Mo? He's in California. Donor. Right. So she makes a prediction in the third clip. And let's hear what she makes her prediction. Two black men have died in this man's house of an overdose within 16, within 18 months. And that is not a coincidence. Like I said, we have nearly a dozen young men who have come forward, who are sharing their stories with detectives, who have spoken to me. This is a pattern. This is a practice of Ed Buck. It is very clear that if he is not stopped, there will be a third body. Okay. Well, she was right on the money there. A dozen people came forward. A dozen. Yeah. This guy is a serial killer. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> okay. If the, if the allegations are true, he's he's killing people with the same method, and he's targeting, it seems to be, a, a certain group of people. I think that qualifies you if, if the charges are true. Let's be. I have to, you know, just for reasons we have to say that. But if well, we, if, d- just just to be fair, if these are accidental overdoses, then you know, there's it's different than a serial killer. Uh, it could be mm-hmm. manslaughter. I'm not a lawyer, obviously. Um, so, I uh, what you're insinuating is interesting, and it's all allegedly is that he might be doing this on purpose. That's what a true serial killer does, and that's. When we get more into the story, uh, we're going to hear m- more details. Mm. Um, so now, now we fast forward. We're to the third victim. Luckily, that guy survived, and him surviving, he was able to tell his tale, which the other two men weren't able to tell. And we see some action happening. Uh, so Ed Buck arrested after third victim. A prominent Democratic donor arrested and charged with running a drug den after three men reportedly overdosed in his Hollywood home. The most recent victim survived, but two other men have died in Ed Buck's home in the last two years. Fox News chief breaking news correspondent Trace Gallagher in our West Coast newsroom with the whole story. Trace. And Laura, prosecutors call Ed Buck a violent sexual predator who preys on men struggling with addiction and homelessness, luring them into his home with the promise of drugs, money and shelter, and adding that the full scope of his malicious behavior is still unknown. In this latest case, Buck is accused of injecting a 37-year-old man with, quote, dangerously large doses of methamphetamine on September 11th, then refusing to help when the man believed he was overdosing. He survived, but others have not been as lucky. In the past few years, two other men have been found dead in Buck's West Hollywood apartment. 26-year-old Jamel Moore, 55-year-old Timothy Dean, both overdosed on methamphetamine. At the time, there wasn't enough evidence to charge Buck, even though the Jamel Moore wrote in his journal at the time, quote, I've become addicted to drugs and the worst one at that. Ed Buck is the one to thank. He gave me my first injection of crystal meth. It was very painful, but after all the troubles, I became addicted. Right. So, and this is coming from the third victim, or is this still Fox News hearsay? Or that was that was uh, they found the, the diary of the second victim. Ah, right. And, and his that that's what he wrote in his uh, in his diary. That obviously, I mean, according to, I mean, we have to be careful here. According to his diary, Ed Buck is the one that got him hooked. 
right. on um, meth. meth. Right. By, di- by, di- by direct injection, which is bad news. Yeah. And the third victim was said to be given a dangerously high dose of of meth. Right. And Ed Ed refused to help him when he when he said he was overdosing. So I, I, one of the narratives were where Ed Buck was taking guys off the street that were struggling with addiction. Uh and he was kind of like giving them drugs to help them, you know, uh, so they didn't have to go out and uh, uh, score on the street yeah. elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But these accounts of the victims where either it's through a diary or the third victim's actual account kind of push back against that. Right. So they, they have a different narrative and their uh, and their accounts match. Yes. And they go counter to how. Uh, it was being explained away because I've been tracking this story since it first happened. I mean, this this is one of the things that it didn't make it across the threshold of black Twitter to, I mean, to white Twitter. Uh, and in the fact that the 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 the, the level of details. Well, I, it, uh, it definitely uh, crossed my uh, my gray Twitter threshold, even the even the first time around. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's been no there's been no mainstream news coverage really, so that that's where you know that's the cycle. You know, to get it on the uh, across the board on the social networks, it's got to be something that's being re- repeated on cable news or or other television stations. So yeah, it's, it's definitely low exposure to the story. And that's the point I was making about not making it across. It it blipped on the radar. Yep. Of you know, but the level of finding of a diary of one of the victims. Uh, where you know, um, where he was saying he was being injected. Those things didn't make it, you know, didn't bubble to the surface. But now, I think they have to get rid of Ed Buck. Uh, <laughs> he's a problem. <laughs> he's definitely he's causing, problematic. <laughs> he's causing big problems. Uh, because he's causing a fissure in the voting block. That the Democrats have created, and this is what more of the show is going to be about of this uh, this conglomerate of different groups, how they interwork, how they intermingle. That being the Black community and the LGBT community, this is that's where we're going to go with this with this um, in this show. Oh, and here I was thinking we were finally going to do a true crime podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Back to the political side. All right. You fine. know, you know, I have to go, I have to, you know, go left sometimes. Of course. Because you can hear this story just to hear the story anywhere. But I'm going to give it context. And I think that's what people kind of tune in to hear. Uh, but let's listen to third victim two. Time. Well, reportedly, Horace, he lured these young men, most of them younger men, uh, to his home. He's extremely affluent. Mm-hmm. He's a very prominent LGBT uh, activist and activist causes. Uh, he would lure them in and then get them addicted, as you saw in that handwritten note by Mr. Moore. This is a tragic case. When you look back on the facts, and Jasmine alluded to this, 
This was known to officials for some time. Uh, why would it take so long? Simple case of lack of evidence? It's not a simple case of lack of evidence. What we see is what looks like the Harvey Weinstein model or the Epstein model, where prominent, affluent, um, influential Democrats in blue cities are literally getting away with murder. We don't need three of these instances, one of these. You just change the scenario mm. just slightly and put the name of any publicly known Republican and have this kind of incident happen once. And I assure you, they don't stop until they have the guy in handcuffs. Who was this speaking, Mo? Who was that guy? That is Horace. Uh, one second. Is he a black guy or a white guy? Yeah, he's a black. <laughs> well, I'm just asking. <laughs> <don't know>. No, <laughs> it's funny that you. I know that wasn't funny, but it was funny. Uh, he's a black guy. Okay. And let's be clear. We Hor- know Horace, Horace Cooper. Is that him? Horace Cooper. Yes, from okay. the 21st something 21st Project or 21 Project. Uh, and the other lady is Jasmine from the first set of clips, okay. and she's a uh, Democratic. Um, uh, operative, operative pundit. Yeah. And I, now I want to bring, go back to the first set of clips. You heard how forceful, forceful she was about calling out Democrats. Yeah. Listen to her tone in the next in these clips. First of all, he he acted with impunity. Um, he didn't care. Secondly, I think this is less about him being a Democrat, although that is an issue, and more about um, the race of the victims. And thirdly, look, at the end of the day, you know, um, you know, the, the life expectancy of black gay men in L.A. County has substantially increased with him being arrested. And that is very important because he preyed on black gay men. Okay, okay. I know he's a okay. Democrat. I, I, I get that. But that's very important. And gay. Black. But I want to push back on, on, on no. your statement. I want to push back on your statement. In the bluest state city in America, they don't care about other black men who are being exploited. If they don't care there, there isn't any hope anywhere. Here's the much more likely story that this man's influence no. allowed he had him a lot of cover. to act with impunity. You hear the change in her tone? Oh, yeah. From this first set of clips? Yep. I think Miss Jasmine got a talking to. Oh, yeah. Like, shut that Democrat stuff down. <laughs> make this a black issue. Yeah. Uh, because if you heard it, and I'm surprised you didn't catch it, she she did a double up. She said, look, <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> she, hit him, she hit him back she to did, back. She so did hit him back to back. You're right. No, and... and <laughs> You're right. You know, I, I feel bad now that I didn't catch that. That was stupid of me. Yes, of course. It's a double. She hit, I, when, I did, when I clipped that clip, I was like, wow. I'm gonna see, I, didn't want, I wanted to see if you caught that. When she hit it back to back, I was like, her brain was working overtime to, to pivot. Uh, now, what is her? What is Jas, Miss Jasmine's ba- background? She's a Democratic uh, operative. Uh, uh, in California, and she was—I gotta be, give her credit. She was for one of the first people to take on this Ed Buck story head on, mm-hmm. as we heard, and that's why I played the older clips to hear the change in narrative. Yeah, because she was going after the Democrats, and this—and this is this is the difference between clip 
uh, after the second uh, death and now after the third event. Okay. Well, yeah, there's a big, big change there for sure. That's why, you know, just to get that context. So what you hear here is it's not about it can't be about politics. And, And Horace made a great point. If this had been a Republican donor oh yeah all over all over with dead black bodies in his house <laughs> yeah that come, would have been a problem yes and, <laughs> and this is why we look at people as being disingenuous uh and i hope uh, black people will see this and i hope even uh lgbt people see this because they don't have your if it's all about politics it's only about politics to politicians and their pundits well, uh, to, and and just to be fair, politicians speak just as easily about going to war and killing hundreds of thousands of people. On all sides, politicians do it. So, you know, they are also in a whole class of removed from reality by themselves. I, I agree. And that's that's the thing is they're agenda driven. They're not people driven. Mm. They're not, they don't even believe in the causes that they push. No, well, of course it's, not. It's all, <laughs> I know I'm stating the obvious here, but I I hope people see that it's not about your identity. It, they only see you as a ballot. Yeah, uh, as a chip, as a chip to be played in the big game. To be activated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a common theme, you know, in this podcast. It's all about activation. Uh, so LGBT are being activated in the same way blacks are being activated. And but if it's something that doesn't benefit them bringing up, they they've hidden this case. Yeah, uh, this is, should be something they should be all over. But let's get to clip number four. It is not true to say that this issue turns on race. What this issue is turning on, what we need to watch, what we need to watch is are we allowing people right in our midst to use their wealth and influence to literally get away with murder? Jasmine. Yeah, well, that's my truth. (laughs) That's her truth. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So. Sorry. So I, th- I think we've all we've addressed all we can about the Ed Buck, you know, just breaking news portion of this. But I want to look at what's behind this. And one of the common themes that we talk about on this show is homelessness. Yes. Um, it plays into what goes what why these men may perhaps been victims. Adam, have you ever heard of survival sex? Survival sex? Uh, no. It implies, though, that just to stay alive, you'll do whatever it takes, including having sex with people. So let's hit Miss Tiffany Graham. She gave a TED talk. I'd always love going to TED because you get, you know, great information. Miss Tiffany Graham on homelessness and sex, survival sex. Let me tell you a story. 
Andy, which is not his real name, left home when he was 14 years old. He identifies as queer, which means that in his case, he does not identify with the traditional understandings of gender or sexuality. The home in which he was raised, however, was not a nurturing setting for a child whose identity was constructed in these ways. He was also physically and sexually abused in this home. The environment was so oppressive that he could not come out of the closet, and at one point he attempted to commit suicide. He knew that if he did not leave, he would try again, so he did. So by the age of 14, he found himself on his own, and he did not have the means to take care of himself. So he began trading sex for food, for shelter, and for transportation. He did not reach out to social service providers because he feared quite reasonably that they would either send him to foster care or they would send him back to his parents. Just to go to show you, survival sex is when a person trade, as you stated, when a person trades the only commodity they, they have, their bodies, for things that they need. And this is a huge problem, certainly with uh, homeless youth everywhere. This is a huge problem, and clip two goes into that problem. Andy's story is not unusual, and it highlights a question that many people have raised in the wake of the Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage. After spending more than two decades focused on gaining relationship recognition rights, what will the movement for LGBTQ equality focus on next? Many options have presented themselves, but one of the most pressing issues is the problem of teen homelessness and its particular impact on the LGBTQ community. So, youth homelessness, defined as homelessness affecting anyone under the age of 25. What does it look like, especially for LGBTQ kids? In the two most recent studies conducted by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, they reported the following information to Congress. Over 190,000 youth and children were homeless on any given night in 2013. In 2013, over 500,000 youth experienced a homelessness episode that lasted for longer than one week. Unaccompanied homeless children and youth, in other words, those who are not with their families, accounted for approximately 8% of the overall population of homeless youths. And within that group itself, 86% of them were between the ages of 18 and 24. So, of course, that means that 14% of this group were under the age of 18. Now, among this group of unaccompanied homeless youth... Studies vary, but most suggest that between 20 and 40 percent of them are LGBTQ, and most of the studies have settled on a number that is closer to 40 percent. Wow. Some big numbers there. That's some big numbers. Yeah. And we see they brought this information to Congress. But I haven't heard this as anyone on the on the Democratic side talking point to address. Well, there's, so there's a couple things going on. I'll interject that uh, mm-hmm. the homelessness issue is always addressed separately. You don't hear much about survival sex at all. Uh, and 
whenever they're talking, whenever they, the news media politicians, talk about homelessness, the only thing they appear to be able to talk about in conjunction with that is affordable housing. So there's no other conversation. There's no other uh, real descriptive talk about what it is. In fact, we've gotten to a point in our society where we can't even say homeless. You and I are touching the, you know, like the third rail there. (laughs) You got to say experiencing homelessness. So yeah, it's it's all unhoused. Well, I like unhoused, (laughs) but but it's uh, it's not funny, but yeah, but but it's comical. It's comical how they talk about it, though. It's it's actually extremely disappointing. Now, the the one thing I want to say is that one of these buck victims was fifty five, was not that young. But maybe you'll get to that later. I don't know. Yes, he. That's that's correct. But the other two were very young men. Yes, yeah, in their twenties. So I'm making the point that to give context to the victims, you know, they've been, you know, as the guy said, he didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. Ed Buck told him, come live with me. Uh, And the point I'm going to get to is there is a certain class of people. As we see with Epstein and now as we see with Ed Buck that prey on uh the low class so right. you have to ask yourself is the homelessness allowed to happen because it creates a large inventory for these types of predators to prey from oh wow <laughs> yeah mo uh, that's a that's a big question i i know <laughs> i know uh but let's get into uh clip 3 Survival sex is an enormous issue, too. LGBTQ youths between the ages of 10 and 25 are 70% more likely to engage in survival sex, while 80% of homeless transgender youths are more likely to have engaged in survival sex than homeless cisgender youths. Now, what do we mean by survival sex? In principle, survival sex is part of the wider commercial sex trade. People who engage in survival sex do so because they literally have no other way to survive. So they exchange sex for money, they exchange sex for shelter, they exchange it for food, clothing, or any other good, which is a necessity of life. Or drugs, obviously. Or drugs. So I asked a question and I'm being serious when I ask this question that we see that a person like Epstein, he was a, I think the correct word is purveyor uh, for people that were into the type of thing that he was providing. Correct. Which would be young girls. Yes. And in this clip that we just played, she said kids as young as 10. Yeah. 10 years old. And by the way, particip- I, I, I talked to uh, Alan Graham from a very successful uh, homelessness project here in uh, in Austin. And he said, this is so this is it, that with young kids is not just uh, perpetrated by old rich guys. It is part of the homelessness experience, sadly. This happens all the time. And it's actually something people really don't talk about much. I'm surprised that this came on the, the, this on the TED Talk. You, don't, you can't find many clips where people will talk about that. 
I had to dig for this. Yeah, I bet. And you, you are very, you are right. Um, so what that leads me is to, in the recent, uh, a couple, a uh, last show, I brought up a guy named Malik Yoba, and Malik Yoba has been, uh, he's a, he's an actor, famous black actor, and he's been on the forefront pushing the trans agenda. Uh, specifically. And when he did that, uh, a transitioning or uh, trans, I get this mixed up, a trans female, a uh, uh, man. Uh, uh, here's, here's how I understand it. <laughs> yeah. Tra- Tell me out, please. Yes. A trans woman <laughs> is a man who identifies and is transitioning or has transitioned to a woman. Okay. And the that, reason and why that seems have- to be the, the most uh common occurrence of uh of trans is the, male to females from what i'm the, seeing anecdotally the reason why i have trouble with that because then they say i'm a real woman so i want to make sure i get that right i don't want to offend anybody uh but a trans woman came out and said how are you being pro trans when you used to participate allegedly allegedly in survival sex and she went on this long Instagram tirade explaining how he would interact with her when she was a young uh, person. Hmm. Media silence on her. Hmm. Media silence. So I'm going to show you these agendas don't really care about the victims. Uh, and they've been pushing this whole thing. And now he's saying Men that don't tra- date trans women are homophobic. Homophobic, yes. Yeah, I've heard this. Sure. That's his push. Uh, and he got a lot of pushback. Uh, or tra- they, they be, they're transphobic, sorry, to be correct. The men who won't date trans women are transphobic. Transphobic. So he got a lot of pushback for this uh, from heterosexual males or heterosexual agenda in the black community. So that go that leads us to this question: Is gay the new black? Um, I understand the tensions on both sides. You know, black folks say, "Can we have something? Can we get something that's ours? Ain't nobody appropriating all the time." They took jazz. Can we keep the civil rights thing? Uh, everybody ain't black. Now, here's here's the thing that I think a lot of black people miss: is that it's real flattery for people to try to compare themselves to black people. You know, hey, we want to be black. And we're down like them. It's an insult to a lot of black people. Like, hey, it ain't the same thing, though, dog. So slow down with that. What's interesting to me, though, is that many African-American people forget that the civil rights movement itself was borrowed. Right? Then, then pay some, some royalties to Mahatma Gandhi. Because hmm. that's where King got it. <laughs> it well, in, in light of the Emmys last night... Uh, right now, there is, uh, there's a, a lot of groups gearing up for October 8th. Uh, there's going to be a hearing in the Supreme Court about Title VII, um, which is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, but their uh, focus is purely on uh, transgendered rights, not black. Well, we've seen this before with the, uh, as soon as the rep- reparations talks came up from black people. The New York Times wrote an article about gay reparations. Yes, and uh, and who else was say? Wasn't uh, 
was it Kamala Harris? Did she say that? There was some, there was some other gay reparations or a recent candidate. I can't remember exactly. I can't, I can't remember. I, I remember the incident as well, but I can't remember exactly who. So now we have this push that was it, that for, for people who don't know, that was Michael Eric Dyson um, speaking on is, is gay the new black. And as he stated, it's almost an insult. Uh, some black people receive it as an insult that you try to equate the two things. Well, I can, um, I can understand that. Uh, but then he goes on to say, well, you, you, you borrow the, and, and this guy's like this, he knows where he, he's from academia, you know, so he understands he has to walk that line. Uh, because he can't piss off the black people because that's part of his support, but then he also can't piss off the LGBT because he'll get ran out of, you know, his position um, at, at a university. Uh, so he in in June, June twenty third, Elizabeth Warren reintroduced a bill on the campaign trail, which could mean a fifty seven million dollar tax refund for married LGBT couples. It is characterized as. Warren promising reparations for gay couples. Just to tie that end right up. And that's what pisses even me off. <laughs> of course. It pisses me off. <laughs> how do you jump and this is how do you jump us in line? How how did this happen? You took our president. <laughs> I mean <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Not ours. I mean, but let I me mean, we 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 we're gonna have a real conversation today, folks. Let me so I mean just turn down your trigger dial a little bit because we're gonna have a real conversation. It's a sentiment among amongst black people that I, I, we already had to talk about being patient the first term and then he was gonna post a turn up and turn out on the second term. Right. Obama and is he, what you're talking about. Obama. Obama, mm-hmm. Obama, President Obama. We turned out, we voted in him, not we, me, but as a people, we voted him in twice. The expectation was a second term. He was going to, you know, really push our agenda. That was the, that was the unspoken expectation. Right. Well, he did turn up. Yep. But not for us. No, I know exactly what he turned up for. For gay Gen- marriage, no bathrooms. I, 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 I was getting there. <laughs> I'm sorry. Trans, <laughs> transgender bathroom. I mean, that's the, the yeah. You light up. You light up the White House with a rainbow flag. Yeah. Um. He gives all these um. Uh, gay historic uh civil rights people uh uh these awards, the highest awards. Uh, one is going to be addressed in the next clip, uh, Michael Eric Dyson, too. I think that uh, gay, back, gay people do black people a favor. And first of all, let's, what are we forgetting here? Some gay people happen to be black. Uh, duh. <laughs> it is not like they told them, oh, you're gay. You don't have to go to the back. Stay up front with us. <laughs> <laughs> because you're looking awful delicious today. <laughs> <laughs> you go to the head of the bus. <laughs> I don't make the news. I'm just reporting right here. Oh no. They ain't got no exemption. James Baldwin spoke for black people as a black gay man. Barbara Smith now, Audre Lorde, 
without Bayard Rustin, straight black people would never enjoy the rights they enjoy now. Adam Clayton Powell called Martin Luther King Jr. up and said, I'm going to tell a lie that you and Bayard Rustin are having an affair if you don't put him out. You know, and you may be getting to this. Who, who was the first uh, the first guy he, he mentioned? Uh, Bayard Rustin? No. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, no, that was. Uh, no, 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 no. The other name. Uh, ah. Adam Clayton Powell? No, before that. Shoot. Hold on. You want to run the clip back? Yeah, here. Let me see. I think it was here. I don't make the news. I'm just reporting right here. <laughs> oh, no. They ain't got no exemption. James Baldwin spoke. Yeah, James Baldwin. That's what I meant. Yes. Um, Bobby quoted James Baldwin yesterday in his, in his acceptance speech. And you know what? Michael Eric Dyson is being disingenuous, and we're going to see this. A lot of the black first, when you say first person to do this, first person to do that, mm-hmm. we're LGBT. Uh, we're going to talk about Mr. Alan Leroy Locke, the first Rose Scholar. Um, and he was the uh, the father of the, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but he was the father of, um, of uh, the Harlem Renaissance that I brought up last time. Uh, yes. Okay. Okay. So good. This, this is where we're headed. He, he's being very disingenuous because we, as we're going to point out, you're saying throughout the, you're saying the duration of this show, a lot of black first were LGBT. Uh, but he brings up Mr. Bayard Rustin. Have you ever heard of Mr. Bayard Rustin? I have not. Okay. Uh, let's listen to Civil Rights Pioneer. Bayard was at heart a militant and revolutionary in the fight for civil rights. Bayard Rustin served as a trusted advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the Montgomery bus boycott, but he's better known for organizing the iconic 1963 March on Washington. The one man in America who could do it did it, and that's why it happened. It had an architect. His name was Bayard Rustin. But in a time when intolerance ran high, Rustin stood out for more than just his work on civil rights. It was just one of these facts of life. Bayard is gay. He doesn't hide it. I said to somebody once that he never knew there was a closet to go into. Bayard had been attacked both for his homosexuality and as well as his political views. Strom Thurmond did it on the floor of the United States Senate. Thurman referenced Rustin's 1953 arrest on a public sex charge. The senator is interested in attacking me because he is interested in destroying the movement. He will not get away with this. Hmm. So they, the, the, the perception is black people have never been accepting of uh, homosexuals. Uh, everybody that was black had to be closeted. But as you're seeing here, we had a, a lot of people in prominent positions that were openly gay. Yeah. Uh, Bayard Rustin in 1986, um, when he was addressing the New York State gay right bill, he, uh, he gave a speech. The new niggers are gays. <laughs> and here's a clip. Oh, no. And so, you know, <laughs> but I have a quote, though. Oh, good, good, good. He says, he says, today, blacks are no longer the litmus paper, and this is 1986, 
The, uh, today, blacks are no longer the litmus paper or the barometer of social change. Blacks are in every segment of society, and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination. The new niggers are gays. In this, uh, in this sense, the gay people are the new barometer for social change. The question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable group in mind, gay people. And you said this in 1986? 1986. Mo, so, can I just say something? I love yeah. you schooling me. <laughs> I, I, okay, I'm learning. This is great. So this is where the gays are the new blacks talking point was really birthed. Uh, so let's get into gays or um the uh, gay, uh civil rights pioneer too. Excuse but me. it wasn't the first time Rustin's sexuality came under attack. Sometimes from his own people, including the Democratic congressman from Harlem. There was the possibility of a rumor being circulated by Adam Clayton Powell that Bide Rustin and Martin Luther King Jr. were having an affair. King pressed Bide to take a back seat. So <laughs> wow. that's good. The backseat is going to be very, uh, I don't know if that was the truth trying to come out, but, um, so you have King's right hand man. And from Bayard Rustin's accounts, he really trained King. It wasn't just an advisor. Uh, he's the one that taught King about, uh, the Gandhi, the whole Gandhi thing. Right. Um, and Let's be clear. Okay, so they were in being investigated, right, by J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, the FBI was all over him. That's well known. Everyone now. Yeah. knows this. So now we're going to give a, I'm going to give you a little By the way, J. Edgar Hoover loved his dresses. Not only that, but J. Edgar Hoover was allegedly a black man. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we don't get to keep anybody anymore. You guys are taking all of our heroes. Uh, we don't want Hoover. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll try. We'll charge you back, Hoover, for. Uh... <laughs> well, I'm just you know I'm just going to look him up because uh, uh... Washington Post. I have the article here. Okay. Was J. Edgar Hoover black? Oh, by yeah. Barbara A. Reynolds from the Washington Post. Huh. Uh, it says in some uh, quarters the racial mur- rumors have been whispered about as widely as Hoover's sexuality. Eastwood avoidance of the issue as intrigue to the movie's main storyline. As Hoover was digging up dirt on presidents, spying on and harassing civil rights leaders, he was cross-dressing and carrying on an affair with Clyde Tolson, the FBI number two man. Uh, It says, uh, McGee said, in 1950s, I was a young girl. This is uh, allegedly his cousin. Uh, in nineteen, in the late nineteen fifties, I was a young girl growing up in rural Macomb, Mississippi. A story had been passed down through several generations that the land we lived on was owned by the Hoover family. My grandmother, uh, my grandfather, told me that that this powerful man Edgar was his second cousin and was passing for white. If we talked about this, he was so powerful he could come have us killed. I grew up terrified about all of this, but after, um, but later, the educator and researcher unearthed enough information by digging through altered court records, oral interviews with both white and black hovers, and the help of licensed on uh, genealogists to substantiate the rumors that had 
um, that she had heard as a child that Hoover was a relative. Yeah. I, and I, I have the Washington. I'm, I'm going to put that in uh, in our show notes, actually. That's <laughs> so, dynamite. That's dynamite. Wow, man. So, so now you have a black alleged gay man investigating another black man. Uh, and uh, so they brought up. So just to give that context. Uh, so they spoke about Mr. Adam Clayton Powell. So all of these figures come from one place. Harlem. Yes. They all stem from Harlem because Harlem was the hotbed of uh, blackness uh, ever since the late 1920s when you had the black, um, when you had the uh, 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 Harlem Renaissance. Yes. But so what, but just to go about Bayard Rustin, Bayard Rustin was not a saint. And there was a reason why Bayard Rustin had to step away from the civil rights movement. Uh, Bayard Rustin arrested. Though I was extremely fond of him, I, I knew that he was interested in meeting lots of other people, and occasionally they turned up to, in my bed when I wasn't expecting them. FBI Field Report. On January 21st, 1953, Rustin was arrested by the police department in Pasadena, California, as a suspected sexual pervert. He was charged with lewd vagrancy and sentenced to 60 days in the county jail. That was pretty fast news through the pacifist community that Bayard had been arrested in Pasadena. All the other arrests he'd had were on grounds of principle. But this was an arrest where he knew he was wrong. I don't mean morally wrong because it was a sexual encounter. I mean it was stupid to get arrested on the backseat of a car with two guys in a public place. And he knew this. Wow. I don't know why, but for some reason this reminds me of uh, George Michael. It's similar. Yeah. It's very, very, very which, similar. Which destroyed his career, destroyed him. I th- that's my personal belief. And with Bayard Rustin being arrested, it they could you know they could kind of gloss over him being gay. And as the lady stated in the previous clips, he didn't know a closet, so it wasn't like you know people didn't know he was gay. Didn't know he was gay. Right. It was very clear he was gay, but the fact of him getting arrested made him look, uh, you know, like, like a de- I mean, like a deviant, like a like a deviant. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I was going, yeah. Exactly. So they brought up Mr. Adam Clayton Powell and Adam Clayton Powell was a uh, 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 seemed to be a religious person. He came from a religious family. Let's just say that. Uh, So they make it seem like, you know, Adam Clayton Powell was coming after Bayard Rustin because he was gay and he made that threat about him and King being lovers because he was gay. The thing about King, the real issue about King and Bayard Rustin was Bayard Rustin was a communist. And they were worried about the influence of the Communist Party on King and the civil rights movement. And we're going to go. That's going to be a show for a later date, because that's a whole nother rabbit hole of communism in the black community. Well, and that also played out around that same time. And with J. Edgar Hoover, you know, we had, and we had the church committee and all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, Now you see why the real reason. I hit it. Now now you see why they were really investigating them. 
Hoover being a gay black man, <laughs> he should he should really empathize with them about gayness ah. or being black. But the communism part. That, mm-hmm. that was the real influence. And now we're getting to the boule part. Uh-oh. Adam Clayton Powell was big boule out of Harlem. Uh, and you're going to see this, Adam Clayton Powell's threat. Adam Clayton Powell and one blacks picketing the Democratic Convention. In fact, he went so far as to warn King that if King did not withdraw his support from that demonstration, he would go to the press and say there was a sexual affair going on between me and King. Mm. Martin was so terrified by this threat. Wow. It was about the Democratic Convention. Of course. Not them being gay. He didn't want them protesting the Democratic Convention. That's why I say Adam Clayton Powell was Boule. And, and you're going to start this for, pe- for people who are new. Uh, Boule is, and we've discussed this, I think, as far back as episode one, Black Illuminati. Easiest way to describe it. It's not completely accurate, but it gives you the general idea. That's correct. Uh, this uh, the black elites of the Boule. Uh, you know, um, like you said, they're the the black wing of of the Illuminati or or the protectors of the Illuminati. Uh, so, yeah, Adam Clayton Powell had political motives. And what you're seeing here is two divides of people, uh, black groups that were backed by two different pools of money. Uh, the best way I can explain that in modern day times, it's like Black Lives Matter on one side being backed by Democratic liberal agenda, correct? Yeah. Of money. And then you have... <sighs> I don't know if it's fair, but I'm just as an example. You have somebody say like a, as a Candace Owens being backed by conservative talking points. Gotcha. Or motives. This is what you're having. And this is this goes all the way back to Harlem because Harlem was the, the, the you know, the, the ground zero for blackness. So there you had these two powers fighting for control of it. Uh, so. Just to give you context of who Adam Clayton Powell is, I have a a short clip of Adam Clayton Powell explaining black power. Black power means dignity. It means we're going to walk side by side with you or through you. We're going to be with dignity and integrity. We don't want any more than you have, and we're not going to accept any less than you have. That's black power. All right. Where was this? Where did, uh, where did he say this? Do you know? This was 1968. He was giving a speech, I believe, in California. Okay. Uh, so if you hear, if you listen to him closely, he brought the words dignity twice. Mm-hmm. So what you're hearing is like really the conservative wing. He was more on the conservative side of things. And when you have people like Bayard Rustin, who was clearly on the liberal side of things, you can hear where... Um, where these two divides happen. So we have to go back to Harlem now because Adam Clayton Powell uh, came out of the biggest church in Harlem at the time and Bayard Rustin cut his teeth in Harlem uh, at the the same time. So these two people were very aware of each other. Um, So just to give a background, it's a little long, it's not very long, but let's listen to Queer in Harlem. 
Hey y'all, it's Lectual, AKA Lexis Joan Day of Intellectual Media, and this is Two Minute History. So let's talk about black queerness during the Harlem Renaissance. As Henry Louis Gates put it, Harlem was surely as gay as it was black. Queer identities were relatively numerous. In fact, transgender people were common among the working class group of Harlem. There was an event called the Hamilton Lodge Ball, which delighted thousands of spectators, both white and black alike. Although the black trans community was a definite target of Irish cops, they still dared to exist. Prominent writers like Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, and Count A. Cullen were queer. Many showed surreptitious same-sex desire in their work, but due to their elite status and the company they kept, they displayed traditional gender and sexual identities in public. Homosexuality was a frequent theme in Count A. Cullen's work, and there are even surviving love letters he wrote to men. Several jazz musicians who regularly played in Harlem clubs had same-sex relationships, including Ethel Waters, who was bisexual. Gladys Bentley was a regular Harlem performer who often wore men's clothes and flirted with the women in the audience. Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, a prominent Harlem socialite, was known to uninvite people from her poppin' parties if they dared speak out against LGBT people. She loved to surround herself with black lesbians and gays. Non-closeted black queerness may not have been accepted everywhere, but the population of black queers in Harlem in the 1920s tells the rational person that black sexuality has been and will continue to be multifaceted. Black queerness isn't some conspiratorial agenda, nor is it new. When shown freedom or tolerance, black queers will reveal themselves in greater numbers. Huh. Um, I'll point out there that everyone she mentioned uh, was an entertainer, an entertainer or in the arts. And I think that may have a little bit more to do with queerness uh, or recognition of self in those particular communities where it's artistic. I think that's historically true. Yes. And that, well, according to John legend, <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> well, you, you can't be creative if you're not a Democrat. That's exactly right. 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 <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> man, yeah, you, you're making me want to play that clip now. You know, it's like, uh, hold on a second. I get to play a clip here. Listen to John legend. Well, we've okay. always been liberal musicians, actors, it's almost by disposition. Um, we deal with the gay and lesbian community all the time. So we're going to feel like they should have the right to get married, uh, just like we do. Uh, we deal with people of all colors and all races, and we travel to different countries all the time to perform. So we're going to have a more global view and a more inclusive view. It's almost by nature um, and by and by circumstance of, of the things that we do. Um, so if America doesn't want to... Uh, consume the art of people who are liberal minded there's not going to be a lot of art for them to consume as simple <laughs> as that because the best artists most of them are liberal sorry there are some country artists that i know that are conservative i have a lot of country artists that are friends and believe me some of them are liberal but they don't make a big deal out of it because they know it'll alienate their base i'm telling you most creative people are liberal and when john legend says it you know it's true so you have to ask what was really the Harlem Renaissance really about? Mm -hmm. uh, according to Mr. Uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., I know you're familiar with him. Of course. He says in his essay, 1993 essay, The Black Man's Burden, uh, that the Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance was surely as gay as it was black. 
as gay as it was black. All right. Well, but the Renaissance, the Renaissance was an artistic movement, correct? Yes. Okay. All right. So the so the powers that be understood. So when you talk about poetry, poetry at the time was very influential, and you know, in, in those times, uh, music as well. So they understood, and as they understand now, it's I'm trying to get people to uh, really notice that it's the same mindset now. You have conservatives on one side, which are about business and controlling the business aspect, and then you have liberals on the other side about controlling art and pushing their agendas through, you know, through art. And for the and, for the few people, because the ratings were atrocious, who saw the Emmys last night, it was uh, produced and broadcast on Fox. So of course they have to put in you know something they want to promote, and they had Tim Allen, uh, who uh, whose show Last Man Standing was canceled on I want to say ABC. Uh, he it was then picked up by Fox. They made him come out and. You could see it. It was the most uncomfortable moment, one of the most uncomfortable moments during the entire show, where he's standing there as a known conservative in this liberal den, and it was, yeah, I mean, it it was, you could see it right there, what was going on. He was a fish out of water on his own network. And, you know, that was... Uh, <laughs> maybe they were trying to, you know humiliate him in a way who 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 knows i mean I, that's how i receive it as how you're telling it uh so we brought up a, a key figure in this whole uh harlem renaissance was mr allen leroy Locke. so that's the guy i previously mentioned as being the f- first black rose scholar adam can you tell me a little thing anything about the rose scholars uh well the Rhodes scholarship um to me is something that uh elite kids get uh the ones that are being prepped to become leaders if you look at who's a Rhodes scholar famously of course Bill Clinton um Tony Blair uh but there's uh, I have a feeling that our cur- some current uh probably liberal uh, candidates I want to say hmm I can't. I know one of them is at, at least one of them's a Rhodes. Cory Booker, I think, is a, a Rhodes Scholar. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of an elitist uh, launching platform. So it's liberal leaning, is what you would say. I would say that that's it, the indication says yes. Okay, so let's get into Oxford University Press. Uh, who is Alan Locke? Well, Alan Locke was a philosopher. He was born in the 1880s, and he taught at Howard University. He was the first uh, black person to get a Ph.D. in philosophy from Harvard University. He was also the first African-American Rhodes Scholar to Oxford. Uh, but the most important thing is that he's often considered the godfather of the Harlem Renaissance, the black arts movement of the 1920s with people like Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Claude McKay, uh, a, really a bevy of artists and writers who emerged for the first time with the idea that you could write about the black experience creatively and uh, be rewarded for it. 
And he was a self-organized cultural producer who created the opportunities for these artists. Uh, and he came up with this concept of the new Negro. It was already around, but he interpreted it as that of being the quintessential American artist who mined the black experience, uh, folklore, the spirituals, and turned that into high art. So he was really a person who brought the interpretive context for black artists to be appreciated, really for the first time. So that's Mr. Alan Locke. So he, he was very uh, lib liberal-leaning, and I have a quote from him. It says, Locke wrote, in Oxford, uh, wrote from Oxford in 1910 that the primary aim and obligation of a role scholar is to acquire at Oxford and abroad generally a liberal education and to continue sub subsequently the road mission of international understanding throughout life and in his own country. Yeah. If for if for once more it should be uh it should prove impossible for nations to understand one another as nations, then uh they must learn to tolerate tolerate each other as individuals. So he was a globalist. Well, from the Book of Knowledge, Wikipedia, I read verbatim, the scholarships were founded for two reasons to promote unity within the British Empire and to strengthen diplomatic ties between Britain and the United States of America. Um, and the, was there a second one? Rhodes also bequeathed scholarships to German students uh, in the hope that a good understanding between England, Germany, and the United States of America will secure the peace of the world. Of course, they went on to uh, all fight each other <laughs> just 10 years later, but okay. So you have this guy, he becomes a Rhodes Scholar, and then he finds himself in Harlem putting together this uh, conglomerate of black artists, which was uh, called the Talented Tenth. And this is a, where we're going to go ahead now is the mind state of two well-known black men. We spoke about one, W.E.B. Du Bois, and he was pro-Talented uh, Tenth. And what he thought was, if you elevate the top 10% of black people, then they will uplift the black race in that way. Mm. That was oppositely uh, opposite of Mr. Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington believed that you built from the ground up. You know, you built a working class of black people um, in trades and things of that nature. And then you, it's like one was thinking top down and one was thinking bottom up. They're just it. the over, super oversimplify. Two sides the, of the same uh, coin, really. Two sides of the same coin. So let's listen to W.E. Du Bois' uh, rivalry with Bush, Booker T. Washington. One of the first moments where Du Bois comes onto the national stage uh, is the brewing controversy uh, between his ideas about racial progress and how to move the race forward and the leading African-American figure of that time period, the late 19th and early 20th century, Booker T. Washington. In the beginning, they agreed on many points about the importance of education and moving the race forward. It turns out, though, that because Du Bois was northern-born and had access to some of the best schools in New England and really was encouraged to think broadly, it's been part of his elite graduate education, being trained in Berlin, working with Max Weber, 
By contrast to Booker T. Washington, who was self-educated, a very gifted and talented man, uh, but he was born as a slave. That fundamental difference certainly shaped their sense of change over time. The life that Booker T. Washington eventually led as the leading, most recognized figure of African-American society meant that his expectations for what the white race was willing to do on behalf of black people were very different than of Du Bois. You could say Du Bois was a utopian idealist in some respects, and Booker T. Washington was a pragmatist, better known as an accommodationist. And so it, it set up an ongoing debate. Eventually, Booker T. Washington's program sustained the ethos of Jim Crow America because it was about black people working, but on white people's terms. It was about a lack of political enfranchisement because black people were subject to poll taxes and literacy tests and the inability to vote. And it was ultimately about a form of second-class citizenship that was segregated America. In this regard, Du Bois did see that real change, fundamental change, living up to the real promises of racial democracy in America, depended upon agitation, depended upon a grasp for power. Okay. So, so what you're hearing here is the two different ideologies of what's, what's best for black people to achieve um, you know, uh, success in America. The problem with that is, and there's always a problem, <laughs> we've already identified W.E.B. E. Du Bois came from the same school as Adam Locke. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, W.E.B. Du Bois was uh, the first uh, graduate, black graduate from Harvard. Uh, so he was, they, that's the one side, the liberal thinking. And I always said Alan Lott was funded by uh, was funded by Rhodes Scholar money and liberal uh, liberal thinking. Well, Mr. Booker T. Washington, on the other hand, he was also funded. Uh, and let me just give you a list of who funded Mr. Booker T. Washington. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, yeah. Uh, for one, let's see here. I have it here. Okay, Mr. Booker T. Washington's wealthy friends. Soros. No. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's it's bigger than that. Oh, no. Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie. Wow. It's all pre-Soros, obviously. But wow, yeah, Carnegie, sure. Uh, William H. Taft (laughs) and John D. Rockefeller. Yeah, the Soros of their day. So much so. Uh, I think, uh, let's see. Oh yes. John D Rockefeller. So these guys were backing, uh, the black schools in the South. So much so John D Rockefeller in 1902, his father, a father and son, I'm reading an article here. Father and son set up a general education board to assist Southern black schools. By the end of the first, first decade, the board had donated more than 33 million. Mm, there it is, the magic number. <laughs> Towards furthering the goals of black education. And by uh, 1921, they had donated an additional $96 million for education. Which is probably three three quarters of a billion dollars today. I'd have to look at what it is, but it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. The reason why you had newly black people, newly freed black people, uh, 
uh, and you had to have some kind of school of thought to indoctrinate them to is what I believe, which is the goal of the Illuminati. So you have two highly funded people fighting for the souls of average black, average black people and coming from opposite sides of the political spectrum. Yes. Which is all, if you want to call them elite Illuminati, whatever the term you want to call, but that's, that's where the money was happening. And the ground zero of the battle was Harlem. Uh, the reason why I bring this up is just to say that it's the same shit today. It's the same crap today. Except uh, it's no longer Harlem. It's Twitter. The internet. It's, it's the Twitter. internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's the internet. Uh, and on one side, uh, you have, and, and, and don't, um, I heard you and John have an interesting conversation on the show, maybe two shows ago or last show, mm-hmm. how the uh, elite are into weird. Hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. All I'll right. stop right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we got to go back to our old clip. Um, Mr. Charlemagne talks about the Illuminati. Okay, Charlemagne to God. I got you. And you, even, I, I, I noticed the last thing I'm going to say. I, when you look up the word Illuminati, though, all it means is the enlightened ones. That's all the definition of Illuminati means. It means the enlightened people of our society. So these are the people that are enlightened. What's wrong with being enlightened? You know what I'm saying? Like, what's wrong with having knowledge, having wisdom, having understanding? What's wrong with just being an enlightened person? If there is something in the Illuminati and that's what it is, is the, the enlightened people, yes, I want to be one of the enlightened people. That's what I read books for, to try to be one of the highly enlightened people of my society. Like, yes, every day I strive for knowledge. I want to be a better person. Like, what's wrong with being enlightened? Like... So, so basically, on the record, Charlemagne is saying that he wants to be in the in the Illuminati. If there was an Illuminati and it is of the enlightened people, why wouldn't I be? Why wouldn't I want to be? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I want to be where all the knowledge is at? Why wouldn't I want to know the world's secrets? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? Yes, yeah, that's that's when we played early on, episode number two, I think. Yes. Yeah, so to explain to you how people get caught up in the so-called Illuminati. And I don't think Charlemagne would ever make it to the actual. I mean, because we know that's a very exclusive club, but you beca- can become a talking head uh, for the Illuminati. Yeah. And I and like and like you said, but I'll play that clip to make uh, just give context to what you said previously about it's the same crap going on today. Exactly. Those people thought, hey, why? I mean, I'm getting access to knowledge here. Uh, when you talk about guys like Carnegie, uh, Rockefeller, oh, yeah. you, you're finding out about the ways of the world, especially if you've never been back in those days. No Internet. You know, you're learning about how the finances work, how the political system works. Yeah, it, it would seem like a book is open right in front of your eyes. No kidding. And can we agree that those men were Illuminati? Um, I think I think in my mind, they are uh, the Carnegie's and the. The, those people they put into who the men who built America, uh, yes. they have some. You know, they may have been reptiles as well, but. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I fell in love with the No Agenda show right there. You always get me at the reptiles. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, I'm just saying. But 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 there is the Illuminati. Do get their 
thought process from one main source or their their religious, if you want to call that, beliefs from one main source, that being Egypt. Yes, that's where they get the the pyramids and uh, you know a lot of uh, symbolism that comes from Egypt, the obelisks, all of it. Yes, and one of the main symbols for the boule is the sphinx. Egypt again. Egypt again. But let's not believe me about the Egypt thing. We have uh, Sadhguru. Uh, I think he's a big-time uh, Indian philosopher. Uh, and he speaks on the Illuminati decoded. In Europe, secret schools were romantic stuff. Even people who are now famous like uh, like a Socrates or uh, Aristotle and these people, they were also part of the secret schools. Why would I make my school secret? Because society is in a mode of persecution of anything that doesn't… it does not agree with. Persecution. Only if there is persecution, a school becomes a secret school, isn't it so? So, secret school traditions are so much in Europe because the dogmatic religious beliefs were really suppressing anything. Anything that they think is gathering ten people, they want to demolish it, they will kill them. So, they ran secret schools. In this, whatever you are uh, referring to as Illuminati and later on it transformed itself into Freemasons, some history, I cannot confirm this, some books have been written as to how Freemasonry was started by the Indian Masons who went to Egypt. Yeah, and this is, you know, look at the Freemasonry symbolism, all very similar. Um, number 33 is a big number in, the, uh, in Freemasonry, uh, a lot of triangles, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, the geometry, uh, even the eye, eye of Horus. Uh, so, all that leads to um, Egyptian beliefs. So even, I'm, I'm pretty sure you know this, but the listeners may not know this, even the city of Washington, D.C. Oh, it's completely Egyptianized. Yes, and let's listen to, um, this was put together by, I, I couldn't catch your name, but all the facts that she state I have already validated, but I couldn't find this a clip anywhere other than this source that explains the uh, Egyptian uh, links to DC. The Washington Monument. This breathtaking tower stands 555 feet high on the National Mall and attracts over 800,000 tourists each year. It's structured as an obelisk, also known as tekets, a prominent architecture of the ancient Egyptians. These obelisks were placed in pairs at the entrances of Egyptian temples. The obelisks symbolize the sun god Ra, one of the most prominent and highly worshipped Egyptian gods. Pharaohs had these monuments built for them so that they would always be remembered. In the same manner, this monument was built in dedication to America's first president, George Washington. George Washington was a Freemason, part of an international group supposedly established for mutual help and fellowship, often holding elaborate and secret ceremonies. 
Masonic historians have linked Freemasonry to the values of ancient Egypt, and the Masonic symbols in D.C. clearly show Egyptian influence. The Scottish Rite Temple is D.C.'s main sign of Freemasonry and even more so, Egyptian influence. The entrance is guarded by two sphinx on each side. Statues of a sphinx, a mythical creature, were often built to guard important areas such as tombs and temples in Egypt. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more. There's, I mean, there's entire books and movies have been written and shot about this. Uh, you know, there's the Masonic, uh, just the way the streets are laid out. There's a lot of that in D.C. Yes, and as she said, the Sphinx was made to guard things. Mm-hmm. And this is the thought, is that the boule is to meant uh, the guardings of the kings. So basically, they're the protecting class of of their white rulers against you're saying uh, against black people you know they stand they stand as a as a uh hedge between them so that i mean that's you know that um like i said the the word boule actually means advisors to the king and that's why they chose the the symbolism of the sphinx right um i did gloss over one tidbit fact just to go back and give you Something about the so we know W. E. B. Du Bois, and I know I'm getting kind of out of order here, but I had to share this this fact. So we know W. E. B. Du Bois was uh, a member of the NAACP, and NAACP was really started and ran by white people. We established that on a previous show. Yeah. So one of those uh, white founders was Joe E. Spingarn. Have you ever heard of him? I have not. Okay, Mr. Joel E. Spingard was the first chairman uh, of the board of directors of the NAACP, and he held that position for many years. The Covenant Spingard Medal is given yearly by the NAACP and was established in 1914. That sounds all good, right? Mm -hmm. Only one problem. Mr. Spingard was a spy for the United States Army. Whoops. (laughs) And a oop. Yes, you had the head of this NAACP ran by a known spy. He was hired in May of 1918 and given the rank of major in the military intelligence division. Uh, Spingar ran a small unit of undercover agents who were looking for proof of of subversion. Mm. And he opened over 100,000 pieces of mail a week monitoring black uh, publications. Wow. So that just gives you an idea who's over, really over these two groups that we think are for us. And nobody really wants to deviate from that. But just going back to, so that goes to show you that all the groups established for, well, not all, let's not say all, anything. 95% of the black groups uh, have been established by white people. Yes, and yeah. not white people with good intentions either. No. It was it was control mechanism, which is not any different for any other group. We've pointed that out for every other group, but I'm just specifically speaking what affects the group I'm part of. Um, So we've established that the Illuminati, they're into Egyptology. Uh, They built a whole city of the Washington, D.C. based off of Egyptian uh premises uh let's listen to the egyptian dc part two 
On 16th Street, where the Scottish Rite Temple is located, there are more temples and churches than any other street on earth. Ancient Egypt was one of the most spiritual places in the world. The designers of DC were trying to duplicate the energy found in Egypt. Walk a few blocks down and there is Meridian Hill Park, and the Egyptian influences are very clear. Within the park, there is a large cascading waterfall. The number 13, the number of steps that line the waterfall, represents a spiritual awakening. Looking at the waterfall from above, you can see the Ankh shape is created. It is a symbol for life and can be seen in Egyptian art and architecture. The Potomac River acts as the Nile River. West of the Potomac River is the Arlington Cemetery, where dignitaries, officials, and presidents have been buried. Likewise, the west bank of the Nile River is the Valley of the Kings. Note that none of this is a coincidence. From the architecture and the statues to the exact layout of Washington, D.C., everything was built off of the influence of ancient Egypt, planned out to replicate the amount of power and energy that the Egyptians built an empire out of. I love how you've just taken me into a Dan Brown novel. This is great. I love this. <laughs> it's <is> good. <laughs> so, back to the conversation you and John were having. And you... You guys made mention that the elite are some of the elite are into weird sexual practices. Is that a yeah? Well, and I think that was more based off of our own experience having uh, certainly when I was extremely famous, uh, you get invited to a party, and uh, in this case, it was old world, it was in Europe. And you mm -hmm. and you know like in a huge mansion. I was very young. I was maybe uh, twenty, twenty one, and you know with some incredibly rich people, and they just behave odd. And you know then all of a sudden there's the uh, the prime minister riding a ten speed bike through the living room. I mean, the, so I don't know about sexual behavior, but it seemed like that would be pretty possible. I haven't seen anything with my own eyes. But, you know, look at the Podestas, look at uh, the spirit cooking. There's all kinds of weirdness going on. And I look think mainly through boredom, but others would say to gain power from mystical things that we no longer understand. That's where I lean towards. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's so, so if you can cue it up, cue up the theorem. <laughs> do you need it? Do you, do you, need, do you need that? Do I hit, gotta hit it? Yeah, please. All right. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So <laughs> normally, I, normally only reserved for Marianne Williams, but you may use the theremin. Yes, hey, thank you. <laughs> I am of the belief, as many other conspiracy theorists, that the elite, as you mentioned, you brought it up. I didn't. I didn't lead the witness that they use it to harness some kind of sexual or spiritual power i have researched this i have been through this many times early early on no agenda show we talk about it this is where reptiles comes from and there's a lot of evidence that this that this was true is true is still happening and i think where you're going is kind of sad uh because yes i'm pretty sure that uh, young very young homeless children are abused by elites for all kinds of crap maybe just to eat them or drink their blood i don't know but there's enough stories about it to make it certainly believable 
And and uh, one point we have to point out, Jeffrey Epstein had some kind of weird Egyptian monument on his island. Oh, correct had, or no? Yes, absolutely. A, a, some kind of temple. Lots of speculation about what it is. Uh, many say um, entrance to a tunnel system, caves. There's evidence of uh, air inlets that would uh, mm-hmm. justify that speculation. Definitely weird. Uh, well, and weird or not, it's uh, Egyptian styled architecture. Yes. So to come back out of Theorem Land, mm-hmm. I'm going to use a reputable source to support the allegation I have of the LGBT connection to ancient Egypt. Hello, I'm John Johnston. I'm doing my PhD at the Institute of Archaeology. I'm here today in the Petrie Museum of Egyptian Archaeology um, at University College London to talk a little about LGBT History Month. This is the third occasion now that the museum has celebrated LGBT History Month. Um, On the first two occasions, we held some special lectures and on this occasion we've devised a trail of various objects dotted around the museum uh, which help to illustrate various aspects of LGBT history in the ancient world. One of the objects which has been put on display specifically for this month is the, um, is the tale of Horus and Set which is told on a papyrus discovered by Petri at Lahun. It dates from the 12th dynasty and um, tells the tale of Horus and Set wrangling over control of Egypt following the death of the god Osiris. Um, after many years of this wrangling, Set decides to change his, his tack and um, attempts to, to bed the god Horus, uh, flattering him, telling him that he has uh, beautiful buttocks and muscular thighs. Um, it's particularly fascinating that this um, oldest recorded chat-up line in history um, <laughs> actually appears to be a gay chat-up line. <laughs> nice ass! Thanks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> nice thighs there. <laughs> so, I say all this to say... Wow. The elite don't accept people's lifestyles. They accept the fact that their obscure beliefs align with that person's lifestyle. That's that's the end all be all of where I went with this this story. Wow. And you know what I'm thinking? Mo, you and I are missing out on something. What's that? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Maybe we're not doing it right. I don't know. A bunch of married guys with kids. I don't know. This is not this seems like we're missing out on all the all the fun stuff, all the power, every the the true mysteries of the world. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, which brings us to our last set of clips. Cause with that power, with that access, comes a dark side. And so this is David Chappelle. <clears throat> After he, when he turned down his $50 million deal and he went on the run because uh, they said he was losing his mind. Mm. Uh, David Chappelle on Oprah. Fine, fine, fine. I'm glad you're here. Everybody wants to know, why'd you walk away from $50 million? Well, I wasn't walking away from the money. Yeah. I was walking away from the circumstances uh-huh. 
they, they were coming with the newfound plateau. Yeah. It takes a while when you punch through uh, to adjust to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was completely outside of my frame of reference. I've been in show business since I was 14, and uh, I've heard the stories mm-hmm. of what happens, and I've seen these kinds of things play out in front of me. Okay. When, I saw when you say you heard the stories, what do you mean? What stories? I mean, you see before, look, Mariah Carey made a $100 million deal, and three months later, she's all of a sudden mysteriously crazy. Or Martin Lawrence punches through, and he's waving a gun on the street, screaming, they're trying to kill me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we hear those stories. And it always happens around the time of their career where it seems as though they're crossing over the next plateau. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is, you know, well-known stories, I would say, these days. Um, there's still mm, gossip that Rihanna may be the the queen lesbian that everyone has to bow down to, and maybe Beyonce has some of that role. And there's a lot of talk. Always been a lot of talk about this. Yeah, but the the point I'm trying to make is when you take that next step, when you know when you you know tiptoe into that next what he said the next plateau, right? Which is you know saying interesting term to use. There's a cost to it. And we've seen that throughout history. Uh, we see that throughout this this whole uh, episode, if you want to call it that. That when these people get to a certain level, it costs them certain things, whether it's the lady at the beginning. She couldn't really talk about Jasmine. She couldn't really talk about how she really felt because right. she was talked back about by her alliances, uh, even down to Dave Chappelle. Uh, and we, we got a couple more clips and we're going to wrap it up here. So David Chappelle, too. Would you say you lost your mind, sort of? No. No. Not exactly. Okay. Uh, I wasn't crazy, but it, it's incredibly stressful. Yeah. And uh, I felt like in a, in a lot of instances, I was deliberately being put through stress because, uh, you know, when you're a guy that generates money. Yeah. People have a vested interest in controlling. Yeah, if you've ever seen Martin Lawrence on Inside the Actor Studio tell his story, it's even more vivid. It's really even more vivid than uh, than this. Yeah, and, and that's okay. So inside baseball, I, I always got to give you a little bit every time. It's a common thing that when black men make it in Hollywood, a majority of them had to bend over. Yes, uh, this has been said about uh, Eddie Murphy, about uh, Arsenio Hall. I know those f- for sure because I've heard people say it. Um, uh, uh, even Quincy Jones came out and kind of substantiated oh. uh, a lot of this. Hmm. And, I mean, he was he he was like, yeah, this guy was with that guy. And, you know, he was this guy was with Marlon Brando and he was throwing names out there. I've heard about Diddy. If, you, know, you hear this all the time. Right, so that's a it's a common theme, and in this third and final clip, David Chappelle is going to illustrate how they come at you in Hollywood. The hardest thing to do is to be true to yourself, especially when everybody's watching. Yes, yes. Show business has to do with compromise and wearing the mask. You know when they say black folks we wear that mask. You yeah. walk in that boardroom, it's not like you like you don't walk in the boardroom like what's popping, baby. You know, you, you got to be, you got to put that mask on. And, you know, it's like we're bilingual. We speak job interview and we speak when we speak around each other. You know what I'm saying? Did you feel like a sellout? 
I felt like they got me in touch with my inner coon. They, they stirred him up. <laughs> when we was doing that sketch and that guy laughed, I felt like, man, I, I felt like they got me. They got me. I mean, I'm a conspiracy theorist to a degree. Like, when I, I connect dots that maybe shouldn't be connected, I don't know. But certain dots, like when I see that they put every black man in the movies in a dress at some point in their career, I'll be connecting that down. Like, why are all these brothers got to wear a dress? This happened to me. I'm doing a movie with Martin. Yeah. The movie's going good. So I walk in a trailer. I'm like, man, this must be the wrong trailer because there's a dress in here. <laughs> they come in. The writer comes in. I think he's the writer. He's like, Dave, listen, we got this hilarious scene where Martin's sneaking out of jail. So he disguises you as a prostitute. <laughs> and he put this dress on. And, it, huh? What? The prostitute? Nah, I'm not doing that. I don't feel comfortable with that. That should have been in a discussion. What? You don't feel comfortable with it. I mean, it's a hilarious bit. All the greats have done it. So, well, if all the greats have done it, it's kind of hacky, right? You're right. So why don't we just not do it? Because I don't feel comfortable wearing a dress. Oh, come on, Dave. Listen, we, we got it all set up. We're supposed to shoot. Every, every minute your waist costs this much money. You know, the pressure comes in. Huh. He said, I'm, nah, I'm not wearing no dress, man. I'm funnier than a dress. Just give me something funny to say. I don't even wear no dress to be funny. What am I, Milton Berle? You know, we're going like this. And then finally he's like, ah. And he, he leaves. And then, like, the director comes, Dave. It really would be great if you wear the dress. What is wrong? What is this, uh, Brokeback Mountain in here? So, <laughs> so then, <laughs> I wear the, I wear the dress. I don't want to wear the dress. I want to wear this dress. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully I've illustrated to a point why black people especially black heterosexual men are apprehensive to the agenda, what we view as an agenda. Some of us, majority of us view as an agenda being pushed not by the people themselves, but from on high. I hope I did that with this, with this, with this episode. Well, yes. Um, We've revisited a lot of things that I haven't looked at in years and years and years. Uh, I never made the connection between, uh, well, it's it's show business, yes, LGBT, yes, but wrap that all up into one. The influence is coming from above. How sexuality plays into that is something I never even considered. So that was a very interesting dive. And that's how we view it. And when you factor in survival sex, it not only has to do with things of the reason why I brought in, and it may seem like a, a weird inclusion into this, but even on the Hollywood level, those guys are looking at it as survival. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. I have to survive with my career, so I'll put the dress on. Yeah, I have to survive, you know. Um, so it's it's the same thing. Uh, so when you have all those things connected, and we and we see these things, like Dave said, we connect the dots. Also, and that's to, why to, we're to make people do things that they're incredibly uh, uncomfortable with, 
uh, is an outstanding control mechanism. It works in, in, in all cases, certainly when it comes to things around um, self-identity. You know, this is, this is how many uh, torture programs work. It's The whole idea is to get control of somebody. And then if you want to take it towards the Epstein route, maybe you take a few pictures, let them know, you know, that kind of changes the whole game. Now, d- by the way, that is what the black FBI director, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, was known for. So yes. how deep does it all still go, man? Wow. <laughs> My head is yes. blowing up. Yes. Okay. Uh, how do you want to leave this? Because I, mean, I could talk with you about this for another eight hours easily. <laughs> it's mind control. I know that's like the end of the day. No, but people, what we do here, what you guys do on No Agenda, is combating the mind control, pointing out the agendas. But at the same time, I will say this. You have to be uh, cautious of how you address people. Just because they're participating in the agenda, God, they don't might not even know. Right. Uh, you guys brought up, and I know we want to wrap here, but just one last thing that you brought up on, I think like two shows ago, our last show, are we seeing a widespread MK Ultra program being enacted on people? I you know I think that's where you were leading with the the trauma trauma thing, but we brought it up here: the trauma based and entertainment, the trauma based advertising. You know, it, every know. everything I'm seeing on the news today is trauma based mind control. That is what. Uh, look at uh, Greta Thunberg. Who, mm-hmm. who, who looks mind-controlled uh, is being, regardless, no 16-year-old child should be put in this situation under the world spotlight continuously. I mean, without any apparent supervision, it, it, it is very disturbing to me. I see the Children's March, um, and I think that's where, where we were talking about it, the climate march, the climate strike. There was no strike. The children were... Uh, given permission and escorted uh, for this issue and this. Don't try to do any other issues. Don't strike school for that. Wasn't a strike. Everyone got the day off, and they just give them signs and chants. And you know that a good percentage of these children, maybe thirty, maybe forty percent, are on some form of medication. That is the definition of what mind control programs have been in the past. MK Ultra being, uh, and I know it's a woo, conspiracy theory, but go ahead. It's real, mm-hmm. and it was real, and and apparently it's just now on a bigger scale. And it gets things done. It gets things done. So if they can do that with Greta in this day and time, why couldn't they do it with the people I listed here getting the same effect? The question is, it's- how does Dave Chappelle still exist? How could he come back? Is he a resisting? one of two ways you could look at it one he's resisting or one he's all in all in and he's just the control opposition aspect of it well mo i can only speak for for myself and i know you pretty well by now 
to a degree. I'm pretty pretty sure neither of us are controlled, which is why we're podcasters. This is why we're not on Comedy Central. This is why we're not on network television. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's it. Wow. Okay. I don't even know uh, what we're going to do on the next episode because this is this has been great. This has been a lot of historical pieces have been filled in for me. I'm I you know growing up in Europe, I didn't have a true American education, uh, more mm-hmm. much more European. So I I know very little about Black history. Um, I think there's a month when I'm supposed to look at it, but um, that's a joke, Mo. I know. <laughs> Uh, but this has been phenomenal to learn this and to see how many parallels there are and how many things you just don't know about where this control is coming from. And it looks like, indeed, and maybe this will bring it all the way around to the beginning, the more things change, the more they stay the same. I can't say any better myself. We would like you to consider the amount of value you got from listening to this uh, this episode of MoFax. If you uh, had about an hour and 40 minutes and like, hey, you know, that's uh, I sometimes I spend my time otherwise and I really stuck with it. What kind of value do you want to place on that? We'd love for you to donate to the show under the value for volume system and go to MoFax.com. And uh, Mo, I can only thank you so much for um, for putting this together. This was a great episode. I'm glad you uh, appreciated it. And um, yeah, uh, pay attention to everything. And the truth will reveal itself. As he always says, that's right. <laughs> and we'll be back within uh, oh, a week or so, as we like to do. Remember, uh, check out all the latest episodes and how you can support us at mofax.com. Talk to you soon, everybody. Hey, baby, what you know good? I'm just getting back, but you knew I would. War is hell. When will it end? When will people start getting together again? Are things really getting better? Like the newspapers say. What else is new, my friend? Besides what I read. Can't find no work, can't find no job, my friend. Money is tighter than it's ever been Say, man, I just don't understand What's going on across this land Oh, what's happening, brother? Yeah, what's happening? What's happening, my man? Are they still getting down where we to go and dance? Will our ball club win the pennant? And tell me, friend, how in the world have you been? Tell me what's on I wanna know what's in. What's the deal, man? What's happening, brother? What's happening? What's happening, brother? What's happening, brother? What's happening, brother? Save me. Woo. What's happening, brother? What's been shaking up and down the line? I'm slightly behind the time.